Well, good evening, everyone. Erev Tov. Welcome to Echoes of Eden this Monday evening. Uh, just a little bit of a note for last week's class, class 37, for those uh, who weren't here in person to experience it. Uh, in case you are a regular uh, listener online or via the podcast, uh, just before class was starting, uh, we had a power outage and it stayed out uh, until like five minutes before we got out of class. So we did have class last week, but it was only in person with kind of the, the sunlight coming through the stained glass here. Uh, but we did not have juice, no electricity to record anything. So for those, uh, again, who are regular online, uh, that's why nothing was posted. We did have class but, uh, as scheduled um, but no juice, which was a good thing that it was last week and not this week because it was cooler last week and it uh, wasn't a big deal not to have a little AC blowing. But today, I think we would have felt uh, the no AC for sure. Uh, so that's an explanation of what happened uh, last week. Uh, and so this week, hopefully everything will run smoothly for us. So let's uh, bow our heads and get started with the blessing uh, before the study of the Torah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher kidishanu b'misvatav v'sevanu le'esok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the Universe, who has sanctified us with His commandments and has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. So uh, this week in Echoes of Eden, we are in the 38th portion of the Torah's 54 divisions. Uh, in the book of Numbers is where it has this, kind of in the heart of Sefer Bamidbar. Uh, it's called Korach. Uh, Korach uh, is a proper name. Uh, so uh, there is a meaning for it and so forth, but it's a person's name. Uh, it covers Numbers chapters 16, 17, and 18. So those three chapters. Uh, it's actually, if you kind of look and, and weigh how much commentary has been given to certain portions and so forth. Believe it or not, this is actually a very important portion. It takes up a lot of uh, discussion in the sages' commentaries and words. It's often referred to. It's a, it's a very critical moment for the community in the wilderness. Uh, and it's actually one of my favorite portions. Um, and so Korak, Oh, we'll talk about it more when we hit the summary, but I want to uh, do one of those where I tell you what I'm going to tell you, I tell you, I tell you what I told you, make sure you kind of get the point. Uh, Korach is an individual uh, who uh, challenges Moses' authority, and he does so from a base uh, that's actually justified, uh, that makes a lot of sense, that actually is theologically uh, correct. And, and Korach could have easily uh, quoted passages from the Torah and Moses and words from God himself uh, to justify his position. And that's one of the reasons Korach can be so significant for us today when we read this portion, because one of the things Korach can teach us is, uh, especially even in our age, we think about issues like social justice, uh, racism, uh, some of those really pressing, very important issues, very culturally relevant and sensitive issues, that there is still a wrong way to go about a right thing, that there's still a wrong way to do the right thing. Uh, and so Korak kind of teaches us a little bit of that lesson. Uh, we'll bring that back into play when we get to the end and being mindful of Korak because as we are approaching uh, the Torah from this archetypal kind of level, right, uh, all of these characters, um, they're not just true historical people from the past, though they certainly are that. They also represent on an archetypal level aspects of each one of us. And there's a Korak in us that um, wants justice, that wants equality, that wants fairness, that wants a share in leadership and so forth and so on. Uh, and Korak is justified in feeling this, uh, but he goes about it in a wrong way. Uh, and that's why in all of the ink that's spilt on the commentary for this portion, it's always significant to note that in the world to come, 
that the high priest of the world to come, one of those that will be serving in the, the high priest's court along with King Messiah and so forth, uh, they always mention Korach. So he did an unholy thing. Uh, it was an improper connection, and as we'll see in the summary and talk a little bit about, it had serious consequences, not only for himself, but for the community, as disconnections do. Uh, but he wasn't uh, an unholy person. He was, he, wa- he was a righteous person. He just uh, misappropriated uh, an aspect of himself and dealt with it incorrectly. So I think it speaks very well to us today when uh, we want to be involved in matters of change or we want to be part of a leadership or affect change at a leadership level or we want to question leadership or we want to question authority, uh, all of which has its place, but there's a right way to do it and there is clearly a wrong way to do it. And so that's a, a very, very important part of Korah. And so we'll, we'll come back to that throughout, but I just wanted to make sure I stated it very clear because uh, as you read these three chapters this week, uh, that's something to keep in mind kind of in, in your own life. Like, um, where might I have uh, good motivations, good intentions, uh, salutary, biblically, theologically sound intentions, but maybe not going about it in the best, most productive way. Uh, So certainly something to think about. So with all of that, let's uh, talk about the overall summary of the portion, fly over it in our Goodyear blimp. As I said, uh, uh, the name of the portion is Korach. It's referring to the man named Korach, uh, who was uh, essentially the head of a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and their authority. Uh, And his name is found in the opening verse of the portion um, in Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. And there is an inner, we'll hit it in being mindful, but I still want to mention it now because it's just, it's so interesting when you look at the grammar of that opening verse. It's so easy to miss it in English. Uh, It literally says, and Korach took, but there's no object in the subject, I mean, in that sentence. There's no object to what he took. Uh, And so that gives us deeper insight to what was the deeper motivation of what he was doing, Uh, which again comes back to the whole idea of something biblical, theologically sound, the right thing, but going about it for the wrong reason or the wrong way. Uh, So that's where the portion gets its name. Uh, And so what happens in the portion is Korach incites a mutiny, uh, a challenging Moses' leadership and Aaron's leadership um, specifically challenges Moses giving the priesthood to Aaron. So the idea is this. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. And that bothered the Levite Korach because Korach was a Levite, but because he was not one of Aaron's four sons, or clearly by this, the Aaron's sons really had no grown descendants. He wasn't a descendant of Aaron's son, sons, and so he was not eligible for the priesthood, and this chafed him. Uh, this bothered him, and he had questions about that. So he was really questioning Moses' leadership and Moses' authority to grant the priesthood to Aaron and to Aaron's family uh, alone. And so uh, he is accompanied uh, by Moses' uh, inveterate foes, individuals known as Dathan, uh, usually with a T-H, but it's still a hard T sound in Hebrew. Uh, Dathan maybe is how you know it, but Dathan and Aviram. I promised you a couple of different times as we were going along, we would return yet again back to that critical moment in Moses' life when he slew that Egyptian and got things, got the ball rolling. We're going to return to it again this evening. And Dathan and Dathan and Aviram play very much a part of that. Uh, you'll be fascinated by who these two individuals really are. 
Uh, joining uh, Korak and Dayton and Abiram are 250, um, kind of what the Torah describes as distinguished members of the community. So these could have been members of the Sanhedrin, you know, like the 70 elders that Moses had uh, kind of gathered, uh, heads of the tribes and so forth. So these were, these were important people in the congregation, all right? They had some sway. Uh, and they uh, gather and they offer essentially a, a sacrosanct incense offering to try to prove their worthiness for the priesthood. Uh, because their argument, as we're going to see, is uh, did not, and they, again, here's where there's theological soundness to it. Did not God call us out of Egypt to make us all a nation of priests? Oh, I, I, I actually, I think he did say that, didn't he? And so that's their point. Like, aren't we all supposed to be priests? Isn't that what God told you, Moses? Isn't that what you told us, Moses, that we would be this nation of priests to the world, this light to the nations? Uh, so why are we not allowed to, from maybe a, a, a Christian perspective, why aren't we allowed to get in the pulpit and preach? Why aren't we allowed to baptize people? Why aren't we allowed to uh, say the words of institution and oversee Holy Communion? Why can't we do that, Moses? right and so to kind of prove that they could do that they offered their own incense offering and as a result of that grave disconnection the earth opens up and swallows the mutineers and a fire consumes the incense offerers then there is a plague that strikes the the community uh, but it is stopped by Aaron uh, as he stands between kind of the living and the dead, between those afflicted by uh, the plague and those not. And so you very much have an image of the Messiah standing on the line, the cusp of life and death, right? And he stops this plague by his own offering of incense. Again, very, very vivid foreshadowing of Messiah's role in the priestly function. And then uh, to kind of show Aaron is the guy, uh, Moses gathers up a, a staff, uh, from each of the tribes, kind of what represented the authority of each tribe. He places them together, and Aaron's staff miraculously blossoms and brings forth almonds, uh, which are buds, buds and uh, kind of proves that he is the one designated as high priest from above. Um, we'll see again a, a, another connection to our Messiah a little bit later on and just how the timeline of this goes through. Uh, but it's ultimately at the end, after the plague of death has been stopped, that there's this great miraculous sign that vindicates everything that Moses and Aaron have said. It's vindicated by this great miracle of a budding staff. Then, as the portion concludes, God commands that the taruma, the uplifting offering from each crop of grain, wine, and oil, as well as the firstborn sheep and cattle and other specified gifts, that they be given to the priests. Uh, in other words, this is kind of the salary of the priests. How did the priests survive since they weren't given allotments of land when the land was distributed? Uh, they had different... Um, rules and so forth. So how are they going to survive? They survived by the donations of the people. That's how the priestly class survived. And so they, that was part of what the Taruma offering was. It essentially brought the food and everything that a priest and his family would need to survive. So that is the portion uh, in the overview. I uh, want to look now uh, at uh, what's going on in some of the text, including learning a little more about Moses' leadership style. Uh, we see a different aspect of Moses' leadership in this portion as he deals with this uh, kind of cantankerous issue of uh, not just an individual, but a complete mutiny uh, of the people uh, challenging him and challenging his authority. Uh, how does he handle that and what insight might that uh, give to us? Uh, so we'll call it a little foolishness uh, because here we'll see that Moses doesn't use his wisdom uh, to solve this problem. Instead, he uses his foolishness. Uh, but obviously that's in a little bit of quotation marks. Uh, that is, he handles it by 
which is this kind of like the leadership skill. Like if you were reading and studying Moses and wanting to know like what kind of leadership things can I learn from Moses, one of them is major issues, uh, major kind of key moments in an organization require, often require out-of-the-box thinking, right, which would often be seen as foolishness by others. And many times when you read or see a documentary on, you know, you pick your person, Henry Ford or a, a famous coach or an owner of a company, somewhere along the line they took some kind of risk or they did something that everyone thought was foolish and yet in the end paid off. Uh, and Moses does a little bit of that in this portion to deal with it. So the Torah, uh, as we've talked about before in previous classes and Echoes of Eden, and we've even read it in where it occurs in the Torah, is described uh, in Leviticus uh, as the most humble person on earth, that no one more humble has existed other than, than Moses. And yet when confronted by Korach and Korach's followers, Moses adapts an uncharacteristic attitude by forcefully defending himself and his brother Aaron's leadership roles. Uh, and so he, he takes a role that's a little bit different. It's not the one we've typically seen in Moses up to this point, and it's not one we'd see really, well, there, there, there's another example where we see it, but we don't see it too often where he's very forceful, where he's confrontational. Uh, at first, when uh, Moses tries to deal with Korach, he literally falls on his face and tries his best to make Korach realize his own exalted position as a Levite. This is very typical of Moses, right? At first, uh, Moses has that humility. He falls on his face before Korach, and he talks to Korach as a Levite and, and reminds Korach of his identity and his chosenness and what's special about it. He, he wants Korach to realize... He, you haven't been robbed of anything. Like, we're kind of, you know, you want to take the image of uh, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Like, we're all functioning as a body, and some of us are arms, and some of us are legs. Some of us are hands and feet, right? But somebody's got to be kind of the head of the organization and so forth. But he stresses to Korak, you, you're a Levite, right? That's, that's very special. Um, that doesn't go very well. And when he confronts Dayton and Aviram, two of Korok's main supporters, uh, Moses is then met with derision and insult. And then we see Moses shifting into something that's not as Moses-like. He displays anger and a steely firmness to prove to the people once and for all that his and Aaron's appointment as leaders is something truly divine. It is something that is in accordance with God's will and God's ways. And that, um, again, even though there is the equality that we're all to be this nation of priests and so forth, like every organization and entity, there still is a hierarchy. And he wants to emphasize to Korach and to everybody in the camp including those who may be on Korak's side but keeping silent until they see how things roll out. He wants everybody, from the least to the greatest, everybody to get the point that he's the man and Aaron's the right-hand man and that's the way God wants it. And he is very determined by it. So I want to read to you now an extended portion. Uh, it's coming from number 16 in our, this week's portion, uh, verses 28 through 32. Uh, and I'll read those words for us. Again, this is, this is my translation. Uh, Moses then addresses the people, and he says, With this you will know that God sent me to do all these deeds, for I did not devise them myself. If these men die as all men die, and the fate of all men will be visited upon them, then God has not sent me. In other words, if, if these guys just kind of live a natural life and nothing bad ever happens to them and they just kind of go the way people go, then you know I'm not legit, right? I'm not legit. But if God creates a new creation, oh, oh, that's where uh, Moses has what, you know, I call holy chutzpah, right? He's wanting God to do something God's never done before. 
Uh, like that's serious business, all right? That's very serious business. If God creates a new creation, this is very reminiscent um, later on what Elijah does uh, when he calls down fire from heaven and what some of the apostles want to do when they're around Samaritans. It all has its roots here with Moses going, you want to know if I mean business or not? Well, let's see. If God does something new, right, and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them and all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, into the grave, you will know that these men have provoked God. In other words, it's, it's a showdown. Moses is saying, we're going to do a showdown. If nothing happens, I'm a nobody, and I better just go ahead and step aside and, and let Korok take over. But if I am a somebody, and I am here because God has put me here, because God called me at a burning bush, because God gave me that staff, because I'm the one that led you out of Egypt, because, 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 if that's the case, then God's going to do something you've never seen before. This earth's going to open up, and it's going to swallow my opponents whole. Text continues, as soon as he finished speaking these words, like, as soon as, very much like in the Gospel of Mark, you see this word immediately, immediately, immediately. No sooner had he spoke these words, that's how much uh, he meant business and that's how much God was on his side. As soon as he finished speaking, the earth beneath them split open. The earth beneath them opened its mouth, swallowed them in their houses and all the men who were with Korak and all their property. And of course, the impression is also, and nobody else. Right? It's kind of like the, the plague in Egypt, right? Those who didn't paint their doorposts straight had, it, had the plague happen, but others were not affected or different plagues where it only affected the Egyptians. Well, of this particular earth activity, this earthquake, if you will, only affected those that were opposing Moses. So even the new creation itself, you couldn't even chalk it up to just coincidence or that uh, he, the night before, had felt the earth rumbling and knew an earthquake was coming, so he was trying to pretend to predict it. It only hit his opponents. So the question well worth asking is, how did Moses have the audacity uh, again, what I would call the holy chutzpah, to not only ask God for this new creation, this new thing, this unprecedented miracle, but in a sense, he put God on the spot. That's a lot of audacity to put God on the spot for you like that. I mean, think about that, right? Think about something you're really passionate about and you're convinced you're, you're right about and you're convinced God wants this do you have enough audacity to then say, if I'm not right, then this will happen. But if I am right, this will happen. Knowing and trusting that immediately upon finishing that sentence, God will come through for you. Do you, do you feel like, would you have that kind of confidence? If I'm right, then this ground is going to split open in three, two, one. Right? None of us got that kind of guts, right? None of us have that kind of, uh, I don't even want to say faith, because again, that's, that's borderline testing God, right? It's putting God on the spot, like, God, I need you to do this. In fact, I'm going to announce it to all the people right here and now. This is what you're going to do. But it also speaks of the relationship Moses has with the father, um, that they're very much in sync, that he very much understands his father's will. Uh, and so that's part of why he can do this. But it's still, it's brazen. It's very brazen. Uh, and so to answer this, I want us to look at this um, enigmatic verse from the book of Ecclesiastes. Love the book of Ecclesiastes. Highly recommend you uh, listen to that course on the website if you haven't done so already. But Ecclesiastes 10, verse 1, says this. Again, my translation. Death flies stink, yet ultimately express fragrant oil. More precious than wisdom, than honor, is a little foolishness. I mean, think about those words, right? Death flies, they stink, but yet ultimately they express fragrant oil. And you know what's even more precious than wisdom and honor? A little foolishness. 
All right, that's biblical speak for knowing when and how to think outside of the box, when and how to go against wisdom. It's gotta, you got to have a knack for that, or otherwise you're a fool. So that's why it's a little foolishness, right, is what Solomon is getting at um, there. And this is kind of what Moses does. The simple, straightforward in- interpretation of this verse from Ecclesiastes is that a little foolishness can overwhelm wisdom and honor. In other words, uh, a lifetime of success and achievement can be overturned by one foolish statement or one foolish act that's said or done in the wrong place or at the wrong time. And that's a very straightforward way. That's the typical way of understanding that verse. Uh, and this can be understood especially in our time when due to things like mass media and social media, when a person's every word and every action is recorded and then spread around the world in a matter of seconds. In many cases, statement or actions that are said are done flippantly uh, or caustically can instantly ruin, or we might put in our terms, can instantly cancel a person. But the Midrash and its style loves to flip the Peshat. It loves to take the typical understanding, the straightforward understanding, and turn it just a little bit. And it presents this different interpretation of the verse. Uh, and I quote from uh, the Midrash Rabbah in Kohelet Rabbah 10.1. Sometimes what appears to be a little foolishness can accomplish what wisdom and honor never can. And that's how the Midrash understands that verse. Uh, and then it goes on in the Midrash to give many examples from the Bible where this is the case. The first such example is this concept of Moses asking God to do this new thing, to do this new creation in order to once and for all prove to the people that it was none other than God himself who had chosen him to be their leader. He did this because Korak's populist declaration to Moses in front of the people was based upon, as I said earlier, it's based upon a very real truth regarding the holiness of the people and the omnipresence of God. This is Korach's claim. This is Numbers 16, verse 3. This is the crux of Korach's rebellion. He says to Moses, Moses, you take too much upon yourself, right? You and Aaron take too much upon yourselves. And we've already seen that that's been the case with Moses, right? Back in uh, Exodus, did not Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, tell him he needed to delegate? And even another time in the Torah, Moses had to delegate and so forth. You're taking too much on yourself. That's a true. That's a truth. And it's a very great risk of any leader. And then he says so much that... um, you know, that it's, 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 it's not good. You take too much upon yourself for the entire congregation, he says, are holy. He says, all of us are holy. All of us have been set apart. All of us are part of God's community and God's people. And uh, that's true as well. Moses, you're taking too much upon yourself. You're trying to do too much yourself. You're going to burn yourself out. God has called us all to be holy. He set us all apart for his purposes, right? Uh, And then he goes on and says, um, after all, God is in our midst. So why do you raise yourself above God's assembly? His point is, are we not all called to be this priesthood? Are we not all to have this role? Are we not all equal before our God? Are we not all equal? So if we're not, if if, if we are all equal, then why can't anyone stand in that pulpit? Why can't we ordain anyone we want if we're all equal? You see how the argument is still an argument that goes on today in religious circles. And that's the crux of his argument. But despite this, Moses knew that his appointment was not based on his ego or his desire for power, but it did reflect God's will. Uh, another aspect of the foolishness of Moses is based on an, uh, another or additional teaching of Solomon, uh, this time in uh, Proverbs. Punishment for a righteous person is not good. Proverbs seventeen twenty six. This is interpreted by some to mean that it runs against the nature of a righteous person, a zadik. 
to have to inflict punishment on others, so much so that it hurts them more than the one who is receiving the punishment, the old, this hurts me more than it hurts you argument. Uh, But maybe you know the truth to that. Moses was the greatest defender of the people, for sure. We've seen that so many times already in the Torah, constantly pleading with the Almighty to forgive the people, uh, to pardon the people, to redeem the people, to restore the people. He's constantly interceding for them, especially at their times when they did very wrong, when they made those really um, horrible, horrible disconnections. For Moses to be the instrument of punishing Korach, who was a close relative of his, by the way, went not only against his nature, but bordered on foolishness in relationship to his own soul. But here again, we see that Moses comprehended that the only way to put down the rebellion against him and Aaron was to think outside the box, to employ a little foolishness. Let's just call God down on this right now. Right? That sounds a little crazy, right? Two people arguing, imagine that again. You're in a debate with someone, you're like, let's just end this right now. God, if I'm right, cause the stove to turn on right now. That's little foolishness, right? But yet, it's exactly what the situation needed. It's exactly what was needed in that situation. And it was also then not Moses who had to dish out the punishment, so to speak, but it was God himself. And so this little foolishness is able to succeed where wisdom and honor would not have been able to prevail. So again, Moses showing us some good leadership skills and at times have a little holy folly, holy folly. All right. And that's what Moses does. Now let's talk about Dayton and Abiram. Very interesting individuals. And so we'll use the Paul Harvey of the Torah and the Midrash and and find out a little bit more about these guys. So Numbers chapter uh, 16, uh, verses 1 and 2, it talks about Dayton and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. So the Torah again tells us why Korach and his kinsmen revolted. Korach and his Levite followers were motivated to question Moses' leadership, uh, his judgment, his choosing of Aaron to be uh, the family of priests. Because they had a desire for it. They had a desire for it. And they resented Moses for appointing only the house of Aaron as priests. And they wanted to share in the privileges of the priesthood. Why did Dayton and Abiram join the rebellion? What was Dayton and Abiram's problem? Well, Dayton and Abiram have served throughout Jewish history as kind of the archetypes are in many ways the stereotypes uh, for all the Israelites that challenge Moses. And the Midrash gives a very creative argument for getting their identity, which I will spare you, will only get you to the core. But according to the Midrash, Dayton and Abiram were the two who were quarreling back in Egypt when Moses attempted to intercede. Remember that when Moses sees two fellow Hebrews arguing, those two guys were Dayton and Abiram. Okay, so it's kind of you're going to get this idea as we go on that. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, maybe uh, again, I'm try to use some 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 jargon to be hip and cool with my kids here. Um, my kids often in school have what they call frenemies. You know what a frenemy is? Someone who is almost like a friend. You know, it's like in your friend group. You sort of do friend things with, but at the same time, they're your they're your enemy. <laughs> like they're your they're their they're your arch rival. They're the ones that's always like jealous of you or undercutting you or you know, taking credit for something, right? So it's the frenemy. Well, Dayton and Amiram are like Moses' ultimate frenemy. 
okay? Um, and it starts all the way back to that time when Moses saw two Hebrews arguing. These guys are just like, or you ever had that coworker that's just like, no matter how many times you think you've made a breakthrough with them or you've had the uh, come to Jesus meeting with them or you've laid your cards out on the table uh, where you've hugged it out, where, you know, you've had the mediator, you, th- you think you've done everything and you've done it like 95 times and you're just like, you know what, this person is just a perpetual pain in, you know, my rear end, right? I'm just going to always have to deal with this person. That's Dayton and Abiram, okay, for Moses. So I'm going to read to you a quote from the Midrash. This is in Shemot Rabbah 129. Uh, Quoting Exodus 2, verse 13. Two Hebrews were fighting with each other. Uh, Again, the Midrash does its argumentation and all that, but then they deduce these were Dayton and Abiram, and they quarreled with Moses thereafter. It was they who said to Moses in Exodus 2, verse 14, who made you a prince or judge over us? So all the way back in Exodus 2, when Moses came, right, the, the uh, prince of Egypt came to save the day, they were like, who are you, Jack? Who are you? You're an Egyptian. You were raised in the Pharaoh's court. You're not one of us. Who made you? Pr-? They're questioning his authority all the way from the very beginning. They haven't liked him since literally day one. And this is kind of even pre-day one. Right? This is kind of like Moses coming into the lobby for the job interview and running into these guys. They have, n- they have not liked Moses since the get-go. They are the ones in Exodus 2, who made you prince or judge over us? Further, it was they who kept the manna the extra day. Remember when manna was given? And then some of them, uh, they were told, don't get extra portions. You're only going to get enough for what you need. But they hoarded it and then it rotted and turned to worms. That was Dayton and Abiram and their families. And it was they who said in Numbers 14, verse 4, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And they were the ones who rebelled at the Red Sea. Both of them, the Midrash says, are rasha. They are wicked. Uh, They also, the Midrash goes on and blames them for being the ones who informed Pharaoh that Moses had killed the Egyptian and for warning Pharaoh that Moses was now no longer of the house of Pharaoh, but that he was an insurrectionist. So they were the ones that ratted Moses out to the Pharaoh. And the Midrash Rabbah goes on to claim that they were the ones who said to Moses in Exodus 5, verse 21, may the Lord look upon you and judge you and that they scorned and blasphemed against Moses and Aaron continually. And so when Korach then kind of has his epiphany moment of, wait a second, I'm a Levite. I'm a Levite, but I'm never going to get to serve as a priest, and my sons are never going to get to serve as priests. That's not fair. That's not fair because God has said we're all equal. God has said we're a nation of priests. God has said we're all holy. God has said we're all equal. God has said he's come to dwell in our midst. And so when Dayton and Abiram heard this, they were like, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, Moses hasn't been good since the get-go. I never liked him at all. I didn't like him when we called him five years ago, right? They're just waiting for the opportunity. And so this week's Torah portion, Dayton and Abiram were able to rally, as it says, even the leaders of the congregation, chosen men from the assembly, uh, men of renown against Moses. Uh, And again, that would mean probably some from the 70 elders that Moses had appointed in the wilderness Sanhedrin, as well as just other leaders of the tribes. This is interesting as it finds its way, believe it or not, into the book of Acts, in the New Testament. Um, And this is significant because this actually, this motto I've said many times in Echoes of Eden and in Mosaic and other teachings of mine, the final Redeemer will be like the first Redeemer, right? That the ultimate Redeemer, the Messiah, will come in the paradigm, in the pattern, in the prototype, in the blueprint of Moses. So that what was true of Moses, what you saw in Moses, how God worked with Moses as Redeemer, you will see this at work in the Messiah. And so this is going to be taken from this instance with um, uh, these two men, 
dates in an Abiram, which will give further kind of credence to the Midrash's take on things because we'll see in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the, the first martyr of the faith, if you will, as he's often described, he gives us his defense. He gives a long defense. He basically kind of goes through the Old Testament and this long defense to show all the ways Jesus fulfills being the Messiah. And he uses Dayton and Abiram as proof Jesus is the Messiah because it proves Jesus is following the exact same pattern as Moses. So when Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, he used many stories from the Bible but he used also the story uh, attributed to Dayton and Abiram as evidence that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, the prophet who was like Moses. For Stephen, it was obvious that Messiah came in the pattern established by Moses. The final Redeemer will be like the first Redeemer. Like Moses, Jesus came to offer redemption to Israel. And as with Moses, many in Israel rejected his efforts. As with Moses, the leadership over the people refused his authority and uh, they called into question his divine agency if he was really chosen by God to be in this role. And they blasphemed and scorned him, just as they blasphemed and scorned Moses. Just as Dayton and Abiram informed Pharaoh about Moses and accused him of being an insurrectionist, the high priesthood and the Sadducean religious authorities did the same thing to Jesus, turning him over to Pilate and accusing Jesus of leading an insurrection against Rome. And so Stephen invokes all of these things. And by comparing the Sanhedrin at the time of Stephen to the likes of Dayton and Aviram, Stephen converted their rejection of Jesus' claims into evidence for those claims. Stephen told the Sanhedrin, and I quote, this is Acts 7, verse 35, this Moses whom they disowned and saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This is where Acts 7 supports the Midrash's story, by the way. Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer. From Stephen's perspective, Messiah had to face rejection in order to be like Moses. Stephen referred to the numerous times Israel turned against Moses' authority when he says in verse 39 of Acts 7, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, to Moses, speaking of the rebellion in this week's portion, but repudiated him and their hearts turned back to Egypt. And at the end of his testimony to the Sanhedrin, Stephen accused the leadership seating before him of rejecting Messiah just as the men like Dayton and Abiram had rejected Moses. He says in chapter 7, verse 51 of Acts, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You were doing just as your fathers did. And he uses their rejection of him as further proof that he is who he says he is because it fits the pattern of Moses to a T. Uh, and so this week's portion, Korak, finds its way into your New Testament in Acts chapter 7. Three days and three nights, another connection of this week's portion uh, to our Messiah. Uh, and this comes when we just kind of pay attention to some of the timeline of things and, and kind of see what's going on. So Numbers chapter 17, verse 2. It says, Speak to the sons of Israel and get from them a rod for each father's household, 12 rods from all their leaders, according to their father's households. Okay? You shall write each name on his rod. So Korach and his fellow rebels challenged Aaron's right to the priesthood. That's what they were challenging. They did not believe, or perhaps they did not want to believe, that God had chosen simply Aaron and Aaron's family alone to be the bearers of the priesthood. In Numbers chapter 17, God vindicated Aaron and established his right to the priesthood by means of a miraculous sign. He told Moses, as we read in this verse, to collect 12 staffs or rods, one from each of the head of the 12 tribes, 
Moses collected the staffs, and the tribal staffs are significant because they represent each tribe. The Hebrew word for staff, which is mate, M-A-T-E-H, is also the same as the Hebrew word for tribe. So the staff or the rod has the same word for the tribe. So each of these rods, these staffs, one from each tribe, kind of represented the tribe. The tribal staffs would have been heirlooms passed on from generation to generation. The head elder of a tribe would have kept the staff as a sign of his authority over his tribe. Aaron was the head over all of the tribe of Levi. You might think Moses would have been that position. Moses was a Levite. But Moses was the leader over everybody. And so Aaron, as the older brother of Moses, therefore had the role of being the head of the tribe of Levi. What is more, uh, these these staffs, these, these mates are all gathered. And so Aaron's rod... Aaron's staff, you probably now maybe have heard that phrase before, is put in this mix, okay? Moses places the 12 staffs in the tabernacle before the Lord overnight. And the next morning, he discovered that Aaron's staff had blossomed, that it had budded, and and the blossoming of the staff was the definitive sign that vindicated Moses' authority with his appointment as Aaron, as the priest. This story, though, has a shadow about our Messiah. And this is what I like to envision toward the end of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus on the road to Emmaus with these uh, two disciples. And it says that he opened to them the scriptures and he opened to them the words of Moses, the Torah, and showed them how everything was testifying and witnessing about Messiah, that this would have been kind of one of those cool stories that they would have heard. Because as we progress through the story, we notice that the entire episode of Korok's rebellion follows a very tight sequence. It all begins on a certain day when, as Numbers 16, verse 3 says, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron. This corresponds in our Gospels to the day that the Sanhedrin assembled against our Messiah, arrested him, and tried him. We could call it day one. Korach's attempt to overthrow Moses and Aaron correspond to the crucifixion of Messiah, as it's written in Psalm 2, beginning in verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetter apart and cast away the cord from us. Korach can be likened to Caiaphas, Dayton and Abiram to the Judean leadership. In Numbers 16, verse 4, Moses answers the rebels by saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is holy and who is not. So Moses predicts that on the third day, There's going to be something that you can't mistake as a miraculous sign vindicating my choice, my choice, or God's choice of me. Uh, And he again, he would have said that in the late afternoon, perhaps after the afternoon sacrifice. And Moses might have suggested that they attempt to offer sacrifices of incense that afternoon. Uh, But instead, Moses challenges them to this kind of new creation. And Moses, again, the showdown. We'll see. This is corresponding to the death of our Messiah, who was removed from the cross and closed in a tomb after the afternoon sacrifice. And then he spent overnight in the tomb as the staff spent their overnight in the tabernacle. Korach and the Levites made their fire pans ready for the contest of the priesthood. That night corresponds to Jesus' night in the tomb. The next morning, after the affair, the day of the uh, contest, Korach assembled all the congregation at the tabernacle. But things did not work out for Korach and the rebels. Number 16, verse 35 says, 
Fire came forth from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were offering their incense. Meanwhile, Korak and his household were swallowed by the earth. Verse 33 of chapter 16. They and all that belonged to them went down to Sheol, and the earth closed over them. That was enough excitement to conclude the second name. The next day, the story continues in Numbers 16, verse 41, where it says, On the next day, the third day, all the congregations of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. Again, this is the third day of the narrative. God unleashed a plague in the midst of Israel, but Aaron proved his worth. He proved his worth as the mediator between heaven and earth. He was the man who was the mediator between heaven and earth as he stood between those who had the plague of death and who did not. And he made intercession and the plague stopped. That same day, God told Moses to collect uh, the staffs. And then the next day, behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi sprouted and put forth buds, produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. And similarly, the Gospel of Mark ends with very early on the first day of the week. They came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they found the tomb empty. And so there was the great miracle of the vindication of everything that Messiah had said and done, that he was in fact the chosen one of his father, and it was his resurrection that vindicated it, just as Aaron's budding of his staff vindicated him. But what you see is the timeline of that in the story of Korok in Numbers 16 kind of corresponds to the timeline of Jesus' passion, his trial, his arrest, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So there's a nice kind of overlapping of that. Uh, so something for you to explore. And finally, being mindful of Korak. So this week's Torah portion tells the story of Korak, as we've been talking about, who led a rebellion against Moses during their journey through the wilderness. So as we are being mindful, we are reminding ourselves that we are in this journey through the wilderness. And, well, we just might be prone to be a little rebellious sometime or another. Moses accepts the challenge. The earth opens up, swallows the rebels and their fire pans that had been beaten into coverings for the altar. And each of the 12 tribes sets up their staff or their rod marked with their name before the tent of meeting. And in the morning, Aaron's rod budded, blossomed, and produced ripe almonds. So what is the blessing that can come from full-out rebellion? What's the spiritual blessing that can come from rebellion? Whining, complaining, foot-dragging, depression, debilitating, exhaustion. They're all pushed aside as doubt stands up. And doubt wants to cry very loud and clear, Put my truth to the test. You see, Korok airs all the doubts that have been fostering within us. You ever kind of been going along in life where something happens and you just kind of stuff it down there and something else happens and you just kind of stuff it on down there and this and you just keep stuffing it on down there. And then you doubt this and you question that and you're confused about this, but you don't really say anything and you just keep shoving it on in there and it festers and it festers and it festers until finally it explodes. It finally manifests itself. That's what we're seeing with Korok. Korok, and as we saw with Dayton and Amiram, they had been carrying this around for a long time been carrying this around for a very long time and you can sometimes see this in congregations where um, maybe you're gathered for something very simple and all of a sudden it turns into some super explosive meeting and you're like oh that really escalated quickly and it like how long you been dealing with this man like come on like that's Korach that's Korach 
All right. So there's your ability to identify with him. And if you've been there, you probably even once you've worked through it, you'd probably say, well, look, I had a lot of good reasons for it. I had a lot of good reasons for it. I had a lot of justifications for it. I had a lot of sound thought behind it, right? But maybe you didn't handle it in the very best way. But it stirs up inside of us. But it wants to be heard. And in fact, it needs to be heard. And so the spiritual challenge that's before us this week is, how do you let it be heard correctly? How can it be heard in a way that is edifying and positive, not only for the community, but for you, for you. Hidden doubt eats up from the inside, draining strength that we need for the journey through the wilderness. When our righteous indignation mixes with things like fear, our greed, our envy, our ambition, our bitterness, well, it brings all of those feelings out into the open. And then all of those deep-seated places from Egypt, from our place of slavery, can be transmuted by compassion and wise perspective. We can then embark on the path of healing. As I said, Korok was not an evil person, and he's never, ever, in any of the commentaries, ever portrayed that way. In fact, he's always portrayed as someone who loves his people, who loves his family, who loves his God, who wants the best for his family, the best for his people. He wants the best for himself. Like, he's not a bad person. But he let things fester and they manifested themselves in an unhealthy manner. So what we learn is that Korok, Korok is that part of us that forces the hand of truth. It forces the hand of truth. Without Korok, we grumble along, swallowing our bitter questions and doubt, and we gradually lose our vision and our power. Korok represents a stage of development that is crucial for our spiritual development and finding our voice. Korok's fate, believe it or not, is somewhat ambiguous. It's actually not entirely clear whether this quintessential rebel is punished or does he die? Is he just punished or does he die? Because we have a hint in the book of Psalms. Korak, this apparent villain of the story, is nevertheless tendered the great honor of having his name associated with 12. 12 of the most beautiful Psalms in your Bible. You will know them as the, the Psalms where it'll say in a little subheading using English, uh, Psalm of the Sons of Korak. So somebody in Korach's family survived because the sons of Korach wrote 12 of the Psalms in your Bible. The ones that are, were continually on the voices of the Levites singing praises in the temple itself. And so Korach, in many ways, does get what he wanted. The sons of Korach are sort of the lyrics that are sung in the temple. Korok is the power in us that has not yet matured. That's what it kind of represents. Um, which has not yet been tempered by humility. One of those psalms, Psalm 85, Korok's children describe the nature of power that finally matures. It's as if they learned the lesson from their ancestor Korok. It says in Psalm 85:11, kindness and truth meet together and they sing for justice and peace have kissed. As a young rebel, my truth sometimes lacked kindness. Has that ever been the case with you where your truth, your truth and your righteousness and your rightness and your viewpoint where it's lacked kissed, where it's lacked kindness, where it's lacked compassion? My passion for justice sometimes shattered peace. My desire for those who did wrong to be punished and to be punished severely sometimes got in the way of finding an actual peaceful resolution. Yet what a blessing it was for the power of Korak to rise up in me and to teach me that my pointed challenges and questions, that they were holy. Over a lifetime of mistakes and repentance, Wisdom gradually emerges to call together kindness and truth. 
to kindle the love between justice and peace. The fire pans used for offering by those who joined Korach when they were going to make their own offering and they made their own makeshift offering and their own makeshift offering pans. Those fire pans used by those who joined Korach and who died in the fire of the rebellion, they were later hammered into the plating for the altar of sacrifice. That's very significant. They didn't go to waste. The very thing used in rebellion becomes part of the ingredients that makes the actual altar for sacrifice. It becomes holy. After it's hammered out, after it's been through the fire and hammered, it becomes holy. Searching through the rubble of my own rebellions, I find that a great deal of my arrogance has been burned up in the fire of experience. But there in the ruins, I also can find some treasures. I can find my passion for truth, my passion for justice, and my passion to have holy questions. Our challenge is to allow our Korach, our Korach voice, to emerge in its time and to listen carefully to its nascent power. Be aware of what danger you unleash as well as the potential for the refinement and maturity. Listen to the sound of your impatience, your ambition, your jealousy, and your greed, but also hear in Korak's voice a passionate life force. Korach took. Those are the very first words of the portion in Hebrew. Grammatically, the taking in this verse has no object. Taking here is a description of Korach's consciousness, power that had not yet matured. Korach's untempered drive is the slavery from which he must be freed. In his book, Ishmael, Daniel Quinn divides the world into takers and leavers. Takers base their power on the fundamental misconception that they are separate from the world and that the world was created just for them. Takers exert their power by consuming. Our spiritual challenge then is to call forth our raw power, to engage it in the process of maturation. To do this, we have to shatter the myth of our separateness and begin to know ourselves in connection, in connection not only with our maker, but in connection with our community and with one another so that we can have truth and justice, kiss with peace and compassion. And we must be able to discern the damage that our taking can do. In the aftermath of Korach's rebellion, Aaron as high priest, he takes his stand between the dead and the living, and he ends the plague. The plague of our own time is the unchecked, immature power that threatens to consume the world. To stand as high priest between the dead and the living is to know clearly the destructive aspect of our power and to take a stand in fierce, loving protection of the sacredness of all life. And that's where this can really speak to our matters where we can see so many people are passionate about very good causes, but they are very, very immature. Very immature. They do not know the full implications of the power of their discontent, and they have not learned to mature it and to throttle it, and to allow it to kiss with compassion and peace. That's an important lesson from Korach. The final test of power is whether our voice and whether our ambition and our desire and that which has got to get itself out, if it is life-giving. Is what you have to say, does it have as its end goal something that is life-affirming? something that is rooted in the love and compassion of our Messiah. In the story of Korach, God devises a test to discern the face of mature power. Each of the 12 tribes place its own staff, a symbol of their power, into the holy center of the community. The next day it's revealed that Aaron's staff had sprouted, it had blossomed, it had produced omens, all deep in symbolism. This is how we know when our own power has matured. 
we will look for its fruits. We will look to see if it has sprouted, if it has blossomed, if it has real fruit. So ask yourself, does your voice sprout? And does it grow? And does it produce fruit? Does it bud like Aaron's rod? What have we grown by our power? What beauty have we brought into the world by our voice? And how with our power and our voice have we nurtured ourselves as well as others and our community? So Korach's a part of all of us. And it's a holy part of all of us. But it's an immature part of us. The challenge this week is to work on the maturation of Korach. To put it through the fire, to put it through the hammer, so that it can be redeemed. And that it can be elevated to true holiness. Amen. Let's close with the blessing of the study of Torah. Baruch atah Adonai notain haTorah. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift that is the Torah. Amen. Shalom, shalom, and selah. See you next week, same time, same place.